0: Now, as a resume, last time we saw the difference between the family relationship and the fellowship relationship that we have with God. Now there are two distinct aspects. One happens automatically at the point of salvation. The moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are made a member of the family of God. For that relationship, there is no judgment whatsoever to the believer. So the moment a believer dies, there is no judgment. The three scriptures that we saw, if you remember, were John 3, 18, He who believes is not condemned, and the word condemned is to be judged. Romans 8:1, There is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment for those in Christ Jesus. That's after death. The other one, perhaps my favorite, John 5:24: "He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. So the moment you die, there is no judgment, your works are judged, you will never be judged." The reason for that is very simple: Christ has already been judged for your <coughs> sins. Every sin you've committed in the past, every sin you're committing at the moment, every sin that you are going to commit in your life was taken on the cross and the wrath of God was poured down on the Lord and he paid the penalty in full. Now that means there's not one thing a believer can pay that Jesus hasn't already paid, so you don't have to pay. Now that's one aspect. But the fellowship aspect is something else because we have to live... For the years of our life in a very sinful world and God's command to us is that we keep ourselves unspotted by the world we keep ourselves a peculiar people to him a holy people to him sin in your life cuts your relationship with the father and your relationship with the father is destroyed and like any good father he will correct you He would discipline you, chastise you, is the phrase used. I'll explain the word later on. Not in any way trying to make you pay for the sin that you've committed. Christ already paid for it. It's to get you into line so that you will confess your own sin. Well, how do you know what needs confessing in your life? How do you know, actually, the things that need confessing? Well, God has provided two wonderful ways by which you know. One, the word of God. If it's in the Bible, listed as a sin, and it's in your life, something's wrong. You've got to confess it to the Father. The other way is by the Holy Spirit. If you know that the Holy Spirit is grieved in your life, then there's something wrong, something that needs dealing with. It's a simple matter of confessing your sin to the Lord. Confess. We saw it last time. If you judge yourself, you be not judged. If you confess your own sin now, he won't chastise you if every sin in your life has been confessed to the Lord tonight then he can bless you. He can bless you freely without hindrance but unconfessed sin means that there's a blockage between you and God. By the way I should say this as well. If you're a young Christian you won't be disciplined half as much as if you're a mature believer. Now that's true with us. You don't take a small baby and you get a cane and whack it and whack it. That's cruelty. Father does not do that. But I hope I'm talking to people who are reaching maturity. And Father disciplines mature people. You do discipline your 12 year old if you're wise. And if your 12 year old's wise, and very few are, they'll say, Thank you very much for doing that. (laughs) Hallelujah. The one way you do not try and get back into fellowship is by listening to your own heart. Now, what's the Bible say about the heart? Let's turn to it. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, Hmm. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. Now this is the word of God, for 2,600 years that's been written and it's true. Look what it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Do you believe that? It's true of your heart. Now, I've heard so many Christians say, well, the Lord knows my heart. It's true, he does. But we don't know our hearts, you see. And sometimes we think in our own hearts that we're all right. We think we're all right. But our heart's deceitfully wicked. Now, it's like a ruler that's all wrong in its measurements. You cannot use your own heart to judge your own sin because the heart's terribly wicked. That's what it says. It says, actually, who can know it? Who is able to know what's inside your heart? You don't know it. You're not able to know it. But we've got to ask God to show us how terrible our hearts are. God wants you to know how awful it is so that you won't put any trust in your own heart. Are you willing to ask God to show you the depths of wickedness in your own heart? And when he does it, are you willing to receive what he says about your heart? Because, you see, the Lord knows your heart through and through. It says that. Next verse, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. He searches the heart. And the idea is, he's picked up a lantern and lit it, and he's going into all the little corners where even you can't look. He searches the heart. Notice what it says. I try the reins. I try the reins.' The word tries to test them. He tests the reins." And the word reins is the Hebrew word kidneys, which may surprise you. In Greek, it would be the bowels. Now, what's all this about? (laughs) Have you read that, bowels of mercies, uh, in Greek? Well, in in, uh, Hebrew, it was the kidneys of mercies. Because these ancient people believed that the seat of the emotions were around the kidneys. They thought that your emotion came up from the kidneys. So that he says he's testing your deeper emotions. Love affection, these deeper things. And I believe that if a person's life is not dealt with on affection, we're in great danger, all of us. The heart is so deceitful that actually wrong affections and wrongly allied affections can cause any Christian to stumble in his Christian life. Oh, the agonies I've seen in some people. I just share this testimony Uh, At the university I went to, they (coughs) prayed whether they should have a mission, whether they should invite David Watson down to take a mission in the university. They put a fleece before the Lord, and they said, Lord, if it's right, we want two people saved. And one week, a woman was saved. She was a fine artist, (coughs) a fine art student, and she was saved. Next week, I was saved. And we always sort of viewed one another as twins in the Lord, you know, and there was the two. It was right to have a mission. They had a mission. Over a hundred people were saved. It was very much blessed. And this woman was tremendous. She had such a talent which was being used for the Lord. But inside her heart, though she didn't know it, though we didn't know it, was renegade affection. Renegade affection. And the moment she left university, she fell in love with a (coughs) non-Christian and the Lord was thrown out the window in her life and I saw that woman go from a glorious spontaneous overflowing Christian to one of the most unhappy people I've ever seen in my life what was wrong her heart was deceitfully wicked and she hadn't realized it now Jeremiah this is in Jeremiah Jeremiah describes this in other terms he talks about Judah who belonged to the Lord and he says, they wander after lovers. They belong to me, but they're wandering after lovers. He describes them in two ways. He says, one, you're like an ass on heat. That's one of the descriptions, an ass on heat, wandering around looking for a lover. The other one I like, actually. I've heard it described as a flighty, filly-footed camel. And, and th- that's it. That's the description. And it says it zigzags across the desert. You see, looking desperately for a mate. It's a dromedary, two humps. And it's a, it's a perfect picture of a Christian, actually with uncrucified affection, in a desert land, zigzagging, not knowing where to go. You never find your lover, in the end, because you belong to the Lord. No one else can satisfy you. And the hump, I'll say they get the hump. yes. <laughs> desperately unhappy, desperately unhappy, because of uncrucified affection inside. Now, that puts you out of fellowship with God. We've got, we need to ask God to show us the depth of wickedness within our own hearts. We do. It's so easy to gloss over it, so easy to explain it away. But we mustn't do it. David learnt the lesson in Psalm 130. Turn back in your Bibles. Psalm 139... I won't read it all, but I want to pick out certain verses. Psalm 139, and verse 23 and 24, right at the end. And this is his cry, and it should be the cry of every person in this room if we're heading for the holiness of the Lord. We should always be willing to believe the best of everyone, but believe the worst as far as our heart is concerned. And when God reveals it, you say, Lord, I believe it. That's my heart you've painted, Lord, and it's black, black, black. Thank you, Lord, for giving me a new heart, your heart. Hallelujah. I'm not living in my own anymore. Now, here's David. Search me, O God. Know my, th- my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He didn't know He said, Lord, you show me if there's a wicked way in me. I can't see it. You show me. And God did. Uh, Verse 1 of the same psalm. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Verse 11 and 12. Have a look at this. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Even when he does sins and he thinks the Lord hasn't seen them, the Lord's seen them. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee, for thou hast possessed my reins. Oh, hallelujah. Now that's it. When we're possessed by the Holy Spirit of God and our reins, our very kidneys, the seat of our emotions, are taken and possessed by God. Then we know what it is to be broken in, children of God. Then we'll know the happiness and the joy and the peace that passes all understanding. Hallelujah. Because there's no renegade inside. It's God's got it. He's taken hold of my affection and he said, it's mine. Hallelujah. David asked God, search me, Lord. Search me, search me. We've got to do it if we're going to see the holiness of God. All right? Let's go back to the Corinthian church. We saw them a lot uh, last time. Let's go back to them. Now, remember at this time that Paul is writing and he's going to tell them off for their sins. And what sins? What a list of sins we could give. Actually, I have just got a little list of some of their sins. This doesn't uh, in any way list them all, but here are some. As I'm listing them, remember, the Word of God is there to show you the sin in your own life. How many of these actually apply to you? Don't, I don't want it publicly announced. How many, as I list them, actually apply to you? Because if they do, you've got to confess them. You've got to ask God to deal with them, to get rid of them from your life. Here are some. Divisions. It's a strange one isn't it? That's the one he begins on. Divisions, party spirit, envyings, strife, fornication, incest, adultery, homosexuality, covetousness, idolatry, drunkenness, extortion, taking a brother to law, stealing, offending a brother's conscience, and defiling the communion table. Now, that's just a few. You'd have thought, wouldn't you, and if you're a legalistic believer, you still do think that that's enough to make anyone lose their salvation. But Paul, who knew all about it, do you know what he wrote right at the beginning of the letter? Let's read it. (coughs) Chapter 1, chapter 1, and beginning verse (coughs) 1. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, Verse 1 to 9. He knows what's going on in that church, and here's what he writes. He begins the letter like this. How would I have begun the letter? I've heard about you, Corinthians. And what I... uh, Do you see? And I would have listed all their sins immediately. I would have ripped them off a strip. No. Paul knew that though they were out of fellowship, they were still the beloved of the Father. And here's what he writes, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, of means belonging to God, the church which belongs to God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified means to be set apart, to be different from the world. The Corinthian church? Amazing. But it's true, the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in Christ and sanctified in Christ. What we've got to do is to sanctify ourselves down here on this earth. That's what dealing with sin is all about. They were sanctified, their salvation was secure, as far as God was concerned. Called to be saints. Saints, the holy ones. Called to be a holy one. This is the Corinthian church. He hasn't said a word about their sin yet. He's building them up. You see, always exhortation before you rip someone apart. And every chapter has wonderful exhortation at the same time as telling them the truth about themselves. Uh, call to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you, and how you need it. Grace be (coughs) unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't finished that yet. Verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf, for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Well, then he goes on, right down to verse 9. The attack begins, verse ten, and actually doesn't end until we saw the passage last week, 1 Corinthians 11:31. But praise God, the kindred, the family relationship, it still holds firm no matter what they've done. All right. Now, this Corinthian church, their major fault actually, their major fault was that they had actually explained away their sin. Instead of facing up to what was wrong in their church, they would over-spiritualized it. They said, but we're overflowing with the, the spiritual gifts. We get so many prophecies, so many tongues, we see healings, we see this, that and the other. Of course we're right. And they were condoning the most awful and terrible sins in their own church at the same time. Now, a gift happens to be a gift. It tells you something about the giver, not about the person who's received it. And Paul was writing to them, saying you've got to have personal holiness as well in your life. To give you an example of that, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this was the type of thing they were not only putting up with, but were condoning in the midst it is reported commonly everyone knew this about the Corinthian church that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the gentiles in other words you are worse than unbelievers you Christians that one should have his father's wife there was someone in that church who was a born again man who was having sexual relationships with his stepmother. His father had married again, and that was being condoned by the church. And Paul then goes on, and here's the key, verse 2 And ye are puffed up, pride, a major sin. Ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. All right? In other words, he says, this believer should have been disciplined by the church. If And this particular man was not repentant about what he'd done. He wasn't in the slightest bit repentant. And he was a blot on the body of Christ. They were putting up with it. Uh, go to another passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now here we get the key to the whole matter. <coughs> Beginning verse 1 and going on. And the point Paul's making is this. If a sin's named in the Bible, it's to show you what sin's all about. Sin is not there to condemn you. It's to help you claim 1 John 1 nine to confess your sin. All right, now he goes on. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They're identified with Moses. And did eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased. Actually, that's a vast understatement, with many of them. Actually, there are only two that he was pleased with. Joshua and Caleb. The two million others he wasn't pleased with. Even Moses didn't get into the Promised Land. All right, now he's saying, they have sinned and they were judged. (coughs) Here we are. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, verse 6, the key. Now, these things were our examples... To the ex- intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And the point he's making is this. If you know those stories, you know which sins to get rid of out of your life. And a list of sins is there so that you can confess it to God. Not to wander around saying, oh Lord, I'm terribly ashamed of that thing. No. You confess it to God and you say, Father, deal with it in my life by your Spirit. Come into my life and by the Holy Spirit drive that thing out of my life. Because we can be free. Hallelujah. You can be free. You do not have to be enslaved by anyone but Christ. Glory to Jesus. And if the example is there, make sure you judge it in your own life. As you read the Old Testament, you'll find sins mentioned there that you didn't even know were sins. We've got some here. Look at this, verse 7. Neither be ye idolaters. And that means worshipping anything. E.g. the television, I would say. Is the television a God in your life? That's idolatry. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's the golden calf when they made it. Next, verse 8, neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day twenty and three thousand. Now, that's not there to condemn you, it's to warn you, to show you what a sin fornication is, and what God thinks about it. God does not like it. Well, if God doesn't like it, he still doesn't, and we've got to ask God to deal with it in our lives. Verse 9, neither let us tempt Christ, that's testing him. Do you know what they were saying? God, we're sick to death of your manner. We want bread. They were not thankful to God for what he provided. And it says, don't you do it. It's a sin. If you are not happy with your lot under God, then you've got to ask God to deal with it in your life. Hallelujah. Now, there's a revelation, isn't it? We should be content wherever we are. Paul says, I have learned in all circumstances therewith to be content. Ask God about it. Ask him into the situation. He wants to be there. He wants to deal with it. So let us, let us not test Christ, as some of them also tested him, and were destroyed of serpents. Now, verse 10, neither murmur ye. That's having your say to God. God doesn't like it. He happens to be God. Who are you to actually get your awe in with God? It's a sin and it needs to be confessed. Now, all of us at times have done that. We've all said, God, I can't stand anymore. What do you think you're doing? But it's a sin. We've got to confess it. We've got to ask God to forgive us, to get it dealt with in our lives. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come that's the consummation of the age now I wonder what your attitude is tonight do you think I'm not speaking to you do you think are you thinking sitting there and saying oh Lord thank you Lord that so and so's here because I think he needs to hear this in his life or thank you that she's here she really needs this message because I'm talking to you you see and look at verse 12 wherefore let him that thinketh he stand, beware, or take heed, lest he fall. Self-righteousness is a sin. And every one of us, every day, should be in the position where we say, Father, help me, Lord. Deal with me, Lord. Not to walk around self-righteously saying, Oh, I'm so glad I brought so-and-so tonight. It's you that God (laughs) actually wants to deal with. Now, this is terribly important. Not condemnation. Once you see a sin in your life, all you've got to do is confess it to God and he'll deal with it. Ask God to come in by the Holy Spirit to deal with that sin. If it appears again, ask him again. Hallelujah. He'll do it because he's a faithful and a wonderful God. If you judge yourselves, you will not be judged. All right. But say you refuse to judge yourself. Say, actually, you dig your heels in and you say, God, I'm sorry, I do not accept your judgment on that, and I'm going to carry on the way I'm doing. Well, like any good father at that point, your father in heaven has to discipline. Discipline, not punishment. Actually, the word for discipline is this word here, paideia. There it is in the Greek, paideia. P-A-I-D-E-I-A. And it's the word for training and educating children. That's what it is. And chastisement is nothing else but educating and training children. And you have a Father in heaven who wants to train you. And because he loves you so much, he's determined to train you as well. The major passage on chastisement is the book of Hebrews and chapter 12, if we could turn to it. And this is going to be our major passage for tonight. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12. The book of Hebrews in chapter 12. Now, this is for people who refuse to judge themselves. I've got to say this. The Word of God definitely outlines it. And although most people do not teach it, I've got to teach it because it's here. And it's very good for us. Hallelujah. It's for your edification, all of this. The unfortunate thing is about our Bible that it's split into chapters. And uh, this old idea of reading a chapter a day is all very good, but unfortunately it misses the swing of some of the phrases. Because the whole of chapter 11 has been gradually building up. It's coming to a climax. And where's the climax? Well, it's in Hebrews chapter 12. And unfortunately, most people who read one chapter at a time, they just get into the climax and then they close their Bibles. Because their chapter's over. And what a shame. In chapter 11, he's been listing these marvellous men. He's been saying, by faith so-and-so did this, by faith so-and-so did this. And if you look at their lives, they're mainly weak type of people, like Gideon. Really weak. But by faith, hallelujah, he really went places, you see. And that's encouragement for us. Well, he's been spelling these all out, and here's the climax. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. And he says this, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, the cloud there just doesn't mean one little cloud that you can point to. It means a huge bank of cloud with no apparent boundaries. He says, you've got so many examples to point to that it should encourage you, inspire you to get places. And in the Greek, the picture that is being described is of an amphitheatre or a sports stadium. And you've got row upon row upon row upon row of seats and they're all full. (laughs) And there are you down below, and you're on the running track, alright, and those people up there are not cheering you on, they've all run the race before you, and you know about their lives, so that every time you look up, you see someone, you say, oh yes, he tripped, didn't he, just round the corner, oh, well, I'll make sure I won't trip, like that, and then you run further on, and there's someone else, and you say, oh yes, he stopped running before he reached the tape, didn't he? Oh, well, I must be careful not to do that. And he says, you're encompassed with this huge cloud of witnesses all the way around you to encourage you. Now, seeing then that you are encompassed about with this cloud of witnesses, what have you got to do? You've got to lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And there are two things. There's sin and there are weights, those two. And remember, we are all running a race in this Christian life. Now, it says about the sin, the sin which just so easily beset us. And it means the sin that clings. You just have to brush it and you find it's come away with you. That's the type of thing. You remember those little um, uh, round things with the spikes on that we used to throw at one another with children? Do you remember those? And if it just touched you. You were caught. And I used to be smothered with them. My jumpers used to be <laughs> ripped to pieces as I tried to get these things on. He's saying that's just what sin's like. Sin is clinging. Clinging. You just have to brush past it and it's, you're caught. You've got it. And that's what it means in Ephesians 4 when it says give no place to the devil. Don't dwell upon sin. Don't dwell upon these things. They cling like this cling foil. It clings to you. Well, that's sin. That's got rid of by 1 John 1.9. Confess your sin to the Lord. He's faithful and just to forgive you. But look at the other one. The weight. The weight. Now, these are not sins. In fact, these weights are actually something that could be very good. And in normal life, are very good. But when you're running a race, are no good at all. The great example, and the one I think I've quoted before, is of a toga. These long, white, flowing robes that the Romans wear. Now they're very good. The Romans were very happy with togas. They looked good. They were stately. But if you're running in the 1,500 metres, or whatever it is, they're no good. There is nothing wrong in a toga. But when you're running a race, you trip over. In fact, the quickest way... To fall flat on your face is to run in a toga. That's it. Now, that's a weight. Well, how do you know what a weight is? Well, the best way to find out is to actually start running. Because as soon as you start running, you begin to find the things that are the weights. All right? If you're an athlete, you know full well that a good meal is a wonderful thing. The bigger the better with people like me. But if you're running, it's no good at all. Absolutely no good. Now, these are the things that we're talking about. In my own life, to give a personal example, I used to be a great concert goer. There is nothing wrong in going to the concert three times a week. (laughs) Nothing wrong, right? I'm not condemning you in the slightest. But when I started running with Jesus, I found I had to make compromise. And that was a weight that had to be laid aside. You've got them in your life, too. I know a lovely Christian who still hasn't laid aside football in his life. In fact, he would rather go to a football match than come to a Bible study, not in this fellowship, of course. Rather, he'd rather go to a football match than actually, you know, go to his, the services, go to the Bible study, go to the prayer meeting and all the rest. Now, there's nothing wrong in football. Nothing wrong in football. But... When it's a weight that stops you running, it's wrong. You've got them in your own life. All right? And these are what I call the doubtful things in the Bible. There are certain things that are not actually defined as sin. How do you know, then, whether you're to give them up? You get running with Jesus. You'll soon know. There's nothing wrong in television. Nothing wrong at all in television. You try it. You try it as you start running with Jesus. You'll know. Nothing, there's no verse that says, thou shalt not watch television. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing at all. But do you see the point? And so he says, you've got to lay aside the weights and the sins. And what have you got to do? Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise God. And actually it's not looking unto, it's looking away unto Jesus. Take your eyes off the witnesses and look to Jesus. And yet actually he's saying, Have a glance at the witnesses as you're going round, but keep your eyes fully on Jesus. He's the goal. That's occupation with Christ. There is no other way to live a victorious Christian life, but to be occupied with Christ, so that getting up is Christ. Dinner is Christ. Reading is Christ. Walking down the street is Christ. Going to bed, it's Christ. Prayer meetings are nothing because it's what you do every day. Hallelujah. That's Christ. It's occupation with Christ. Don't look at one another either. You'll soon find faults in one another, get critical, don't do it. Look to Jesus, looking away unto Jesus. There it is. The author, it means the chief leader, the best example that there is. The author and the finisher, the completer, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Hallelujah. Set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what's he doing there? (coughs) He's your defense lawyer. Up in heaven. Praise God. Verse 3. For consider him. Meditate on Jesus that endured such contradiction. That's opposition. Such opposition of sinners against himself. Who opposed him? The crowd did. The religious leaders did. The political leaders did. The devil did. Even some of his disciples did. Worse than that, a guilty sinner of a thief on the cross opposed him. Consider him. Look at what he had to go through, it says. Lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. To be occupied with Christ means you can take every circumstance that comes with joy Praise God. Keep your eyes on Christ. Verse 4. Ye have not yet resisted against blood, striving against sin. What's the point? He has. You haven't. He has. So he's saying, take him as your example, because he's stood firmly against it. This is a tremendous battle described here. Resisted is to stand against. Striving is agonizing with. Look at that. Ye have not stood against... Unto blood, agonizing against sin, but Christ has. Now we get the chastisement. Verse 5 And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as to ch- unto children My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. To despise it means to overlook it, to explain it away. It's so easy to explain away the Lord's chastisement. Don't do it. Take it very seriously. If you don't, it will get worse. In the same way that if your children at home ignored the correction you'd given them, you'd have to increase the discipline so that they would eventually learn. Now, there's the principle, and with God it's the same. If you take it seriously, it will be removed. 1 John nine and you're restored back to fellowship, no more chastisement. Right, so my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Oh, hallelujah. It's because he loves you that he wants fellowship with you. And if your sin is actually stopping the fellowship, well, he'd rather discipline you to restore that fellowship again and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Are you a received son? Amen. I am, I know. Glory to Jesus. Because every time I step over the line, my father makes sure that I learn a few lessons. And I thank him always. Praise God, because we become wiser. Number seven, verse seven. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not and the fact that you are chastened does not mean you've lost your salvation it means that you haven't lost your salvation (laughs) hallelujah because if you'd lost your salvation he wouldn't chastise you as a son glory to jesus praise god and the worse the discipline gets the more you can be sure that you are still his son glory to jesus verse eight But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards, and not sons. And that, of course, means you're illegitimate, without father and without mother. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected Mm. us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits, and live? You've had earthly, fleshly fathers who corrected you, and you believed it now you've got a spiritual father, and when he corrects you, believe it, accept it, be corrected by it, and what' does it say and live, live, come into fullness of life, glory to Jesus. Oh, hallelujah, The Christian life is so glorious and wonderful, but the chastised Christian life is so awful it cannot be described. As you know, probably, and as I know, definitely, having tried to live it. Oh, the wonderful fulfilment of fellowship with the Father. It's worth the discipline when you're trained by it. It really is. Oh, you come into marvellous pasture land that you didn't know existed before, into verdant green areas. Oh, hallelujah, with bubbling springs. And suddenly you say, why did I stay out in that desert all my life? What has it been about, Lord? Forgive me for my pride. Hallelujah. And my self-righteousness. Verse 10. For they verily, for a few days, chastened us after their own pleasure. But he for our good. There it is. He for our good, or for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. And that's what I want. I want... His holiness to be completed in me, so that when I walk around, the holiness of Jesus walks with me. Hallelujah, because I've made it my own. And if you listen to the correction of God, it's for your profit that you, yes, you might be partakers of his holiness. It is possible. It is possible to get there. Glory to Jesus. It is possible by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the old sin nature inside. It is possible. Because the move of the Spirit and the walk in the Spirit neutralizes the old sin nature. It's true. It takes time to get there. But it's true. And every time you see a sin, confess it. Every time he disciplines you, believe it. Hallelujah, and you'll know the peace and joy and maturity will surely come through. And who's glorified? He's glorified, which is what we want, isn't it? Hallelujah, only him. Now it goes on. All right, verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. And that's true, amen? Amen. When it happens, it's not very nice. Okay. But grievous, nevertheless, afterward... It yieldeth the peaceful fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby, but only unto them who are exercised thereby. Those who despise it, you're going to get it worse. That's what it means. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Oh, hallelujah. That's what chastening is all about. That's what it's all about, and it's worth it every bit. It can be stopped just by 1 John 1 9, confessing your sin. And then it goes on, verse 12. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. Yeah. Amen. Lift them up. Now, what's this mean? Lift up is a medical term, and it means to put back into joint, dislocated joints. Now, if you've ever had a dislocated joint, you know something. Not only are they painful... But you can't actually move very well with one. Have you ever tried playing tennis with your elbow joint out, for example? It's extremely painful. And you're quite useless. You can't do anything with it at all. And that's what sin does in your life. It dislocates you as a joint in the body of Christ. Sin means you're hanging out painfully. And it's not just painful for you. It's painful for the people around you. The major reason for that is that instead of facing up to the fact it's your fault, you'll blame everyone in sight. It's all their fault. And it's painful, very painful. So it says, get it back into joint. Go on, get it back into joint. Confess it to God. And the feeble knees. The feeble knees, these are paralytic knees. Right? Causing you to hobble. Instead of walk and dance in the spirit, you're hobbling. Because sin has made you paralytic. That's what it means. If you judge yourself, you be not judged. Right, verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet. These are smooth paths, easy paths, not difficult paths. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. And he says, if you don't confess your sin, it's going to get worse. You'll not only be lame, you will be dislocated, definitely. But rather be healed. Rather be healed. He does not want to chastise. God's purpose is not that. He loves you. He wants you walking with him uprightly. But rather be healed. Praise God. Verse 14. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. And to see the Lord bodily manifest in us is possible through holiness. Glory to Jesus. And what the Lord, the Father, wants is his Son revealed in each person. That's what this discipline is about. But you don't have to resort to discipline. Judge yourself and you be not judged. Hallelujah. That's a glorious and wonderful picture. Hallelujah. Holiness is possible. And we as a fellowship have got to start manifesting the holiness of Jesus out of every joint in this place. And if the joint's dislocated, they've got to get back into joint. Or else they'll be further dislocated. That's the chastening of God. And I want to emphasize this. You do not join in God's discipline of another believer. Right? Because as soon as you do, you're out of fellowship and you're going to get it yourself. God is quite able to discipline his own children and he doesn't need you to help. Praise God. All right, let's um, just go back to the Corinthian church. All right? Concentrating on the Corinthians. The unfortunate thing about us as Christians, of course, is (coughs) that we tend always to dwell on the negative. But actually, after 1 Corinthians, there's a glorious book called 2 Corinthians. And something happened to the Corinthian church because of the letter that Paul had written, because of 1 Corinthians. Isn't it a shame? Corinthians are known as the carnal church, instead of the church that responded to the message and got back into fellowship. How tragic it really is. Now, the passage I want is 2 Corinthians and chapter 7. 2 Corinthians, in chapter 7, and by way of revision from the 1 John 1, 9 tape, I think it was, let me first of all make it clear. There are two words in Greek which are translated repent, and only one of them means repent. If uh, you know the tapes, you can probably tell me what these words are, But so as not to embarrass everyone, here they are. The first word, number one, metamelomai. M-E-T-A-M-E-L-O-M-A-I. And it's translated repent in the Bible, but it doesn't mean repent. It means to feel sorry, to be emotionally upset, to be grieved, to regret... And no man ever got to heaven by metamelami. That does not take you to heaven. Feeling emotionally upset, never, never got anyone into heaven. That's true. And it's said of Judas that he, what, he repented, but it's this phrase, he wept. He wept tears, but he never got to the other one. The second one, which is correct repentance, and this gets anyone to heaven, anyone at all... <coughs> M-E-T-A-N-O-E-O. Long O at the end. Metanoeo. Metanoeo. And this is to change your mind about something. To change your mind about something. Every person who is experienced in counselling should know one thing, that tears mean very little to most people. In fact, I can think of Four main reasons why people cry. And we've got to beware of these uh, when we're counselling people. The first one is for sympathy or pity or more interest. And it's remarkable the number of people that can actually cry when they're so filled with self-pity. And you and I can take it as being true repentance, and it's not. It's self-indulgence, actually. The second one is that uh, you can be sorry because of failure. You see, you failed in some particular way and, and uh, you're, you're full of self-failure and there you are weeping tears of, uh, you know, of being so desolate because nothing seems to have gone right in your life. The next one I found, this is just summarizing tears, uh, the next one that I found is the shock of being found out. (coughs) And I find that's a big one. Some people burst into tears because God has revealed something in their lives that they didn't want anyone to know. And the last one is false spirituality. There are some people who think tears are spiritual, you know, and it's humbug very often. The only tears... That are genuine before God, as far as sin is concerned, are tears of love, because you love Him so much, and you regret that you have hurt Him through your sin. That's godly grief, and there's a difference between them. All right. Now, there we go. Now, you've got, in this particular passage, both words used. You've got emotional upset and you've got true repentance. And here's the Corinthian church. This is the Corinthian church I want you to remember. Right? This is the Corinthian church I join. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8. Paul's writing to them. He says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I upset you with a letter... I do not repent, and the word repent there is to be upset. It's the first one. In fact, in verse 8, real repentance is not mentioned. He says, for though I made you sorry with the letter, I don't regret it, he says. It's regret there. Though I did regret it, and obviously he did. He'd written a letter that had hurt them a lot, you know, and he felt pretty bad about it for a short time. I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season, a short time. Verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. And that's true repentance. He said, I'm so, I rejoice utterly now because although it did upset you emotionally, it led you to a change of mind about the sin and you put it right in the church. You didn't accept it anymore. You, you were so upset and grieved that I should have talked to you in that way but it caused you to change your mind towards the things that were wrong. He said, so I rejoice that I wrote that letter and I'm thrilled that I wrote to you in that particular vein. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, not self-pitying, not for attention, not for spirituality, none of those things, but because they grieved the Lord. After a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. Verse 10, and here you've got the difference. For godly sorrow worketh repentance. True tears bring you to a change of attitude about your sin. True tears do. False tears of self-pity lead you to more self-pity. Tears about failure lead you to more tears about failure. But true godly tears lead you to a rethinking about your position before God and cause you to repent. Oh, hallelujah. And the whole church had been so upset that they changed their attitude. And the man was, they told the man who'd been living with his mother-in-law, uh, sorry, his stepmother, they said to him, you've got to stop it and confess it. Now, we don't know. He, I trust that he did confess it and get right. Otherwise, they said, well, I'm sorry. But brother, it's a blot on the body of Christ, as far as we're concerned. But godly sorrow worketh repentance. Now the next phrase, to salvation not to be repented of. What's that? To a salvation without regret. Oh, hallelujah. A salvation that's joy-packed. A salvation that's full of good things. Not a salvation full of tears, which is what people will experience and do experience if they remain out of fellowship with the Lord. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. And any other reason for sorrowing or crying produces death inside. The number of people I've counseled, and they've wept and wept and wept about their sins. And then a month later, they're doing things just as bad as they were doing before. What's all that... those tears about. They had not come to a true change of heart and mind before the Lord. It is not metamelamai. It is metan or that's needed. A change of mind. Now look at this. Verse 11. For behold this self same thing that she sorrowed after a godly sort What carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What a glorious end. Judge yourself and ye be not judged. And the Corinthian church, having been judged terribly by the Lord, suddenly came into prosperity. Suddenly came into such a place of blessing, they couldn't believe it. Praise the name of Jesus. Um, Glory to Jesus. The corrected translation, this is the price translation. Let me read it through. For though I made you sorry with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you for a short while. Now I rejoice... Not that you were made sorry, but that you were made sorry to repentance. For you felt a godly sorrow, and so were no no losers by what we did. For godly sorrow produces repentance to a salvation which brings no regret, but the world's sorrow produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal and what punishment. On every point you have proved yourselves clear on the matter. Praise the name of Jesus. The holiness had come into their midst and they saw the Lord high lifted up in their very midst. We can do it. Judge yourself and ye be not judged. Don't wait for the chastening of the Lord before you get right. Get right now. Get right now. Find a new place with God where he so occupies your life you can't bear to hurt him with your sin because sin is like a knife wound into the very heart of God. Oh, hallelujah, that will cause repentance. That will cause a rethinking on these things. The holiness is what we as believers have got to manifest in our lives and to show a world which is enchained to sin and can't get out. And we can say, we're free. We're free because the Lord Jesus Christ has taken our sin and dealt with that sin on the cross. You too can be free. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Amen.